Art takes, not hot takes. This is Everyone is Wrong, a counterintuitive pop culture podcast. I'm your host, Seth Sommerfeld. Thanks for listening. My guest today is an internet film analyzer, a man who overflows with guts, and someone who literally took his engagement photos at a video rental store. He has sequestered himself in a cabin in the woods with nothing but a shotgun, chainsaw, and his ideas to come to the defense of 2013's Evil Dead, a pseudo-remake of Sam Raimi's 1981 low-budget horror classic, The Evil Dead. Not only will he attempt to fend off the undead legions that claim the newer version was unnecessary, but he is willing to give a pendant necklace to the most recent entry as he believes it surpasses the beloved original. Everyone is wrong, but Kevin Parker isn't. Thanks for coming on, Kevin. Thank you for having me, Seth. Exciting to be here. Yeah, how are you doing in general? Uh, I'm I'm good. Holding up okay. How how about yourself? I I'm surviving, you know. I haven't been horribly dismembered by any undead demons this week, so that's that's good. Mm-hmm. Haven't been Always buried alive. Haven't been set on fire, you know, all the all the things that would indicate I might be a demon um that needs to be killed. So, you know, it goes, it goes. <laughs> so, let's get into the background of Evil Dead. First off, we should start by setting up the original to kind of frame the conversation. The Evil Dead was an iconic low-budget horror film written and directed by Sam Raimi. The film centers around five college students who rent a cheap, isolated cabin in the woods for a vacation getaway. They find a mysterious book in the basement along with an audio tape where an archaeologist reads the incantations in the book. Playing the tape awakens demon spirits tied to the book. When one of the campers goes into the woods to investigate a strange noise, the demon possesses her, which begins a harrowing night of gore and death. First screened independently in 1981, the film became a cult hit immediately. It screened at Cannes and drew rave reviews from horror icon Stephen King. And the movie launched the career of Raimi, who would most notably go on to direct the original Spider-Man trilogy. The film's lead, Bruce Campbell, who played Ash. And even its editor, Joel Cohen, one half of the Cohen brothers. With a budget of around $375,000, it has made an estimated $29 million in box office to date. Despite being a gore fest at the time and garnering an NC-17 rating, the film was beloved among critics and audience alike, sitting at 95% on Rotten Tomatoes, 100% among top critics, with an 84% audience score. The film spawned two direct sequels by Raimi, starring Campbell's Ash, the comedy horror of 1987's Evil Dead 2, and the comic action horror sort of fanfic film Army of Darkness in 1992. There has also been a Campbell-led TV series spinoff, Ash vs. the Evil Dead, which ran for three seasons on Stars, starting in 2015. And there's even been an off-Broadway musical, Evil Dead the Musical. Which brings us to Evil Dead. It's going to be a little bit confusing. We will figure out a way to (laughs) discern these, but the original had the, and the remake had no the. We might just refer to them as the newer one or the OG or somehow. We'll figure it out as we go along. (laughs) It's a learning process. 
Evil Dead is a reimagining slash remake of The Evil Dead, released in 2013. Ramey, Campbell, and original producer Robert Tapert were all producers on this newer version, so it has some of the lineage of the original series. The film is directed and co-written by Fede Alvarez. Again, five young adults find themselves in a secluded cabin for slightly different reasons, which we'll get into. And horrors from the Book of the Dead are summoned, and they must try to survive the night. The film was a box office success, making $97.5 million against a $17 million budget. While the new Evil Dead did fine financially, it fared much worse with critics and audiences. It's not to say that the reception was poor, just compared to the outpouring of affection for the original, it paled in comparison. So on Rotten Tomatoes, just as a bar, it currently sits at 63% among both audiences and critics, and 60% among top critics, which is decent, but it's a far cry from 100% among top critics. Inevitably, most of the criticism for the newer version was tied to critics' love of the original. Newsday's Raffer Guzman opined, Evil Dead turns Raimi's homemade horror treat into a professional-looking, overscripted bore. USA Today's Claudia Puig wrote, Sure, this is a higher-budget retread, but a remake shouldn't exist simply to ramp up the graphic violence, even if special effects have improved immeasurably in the past 30 years. Rene Rodriguez of Miami Herald wrote, The Evil Dead was an absolute blast. Evil Dead is just a well-made gross-out, and it's kind of a bummer. Michael Phillips of the Chicago Tribune said, You can't remake a sense of humor. Alvarez may have one, but it'll have to wait for the next project. Lou Lumernick of the New York Post started his review this way, Quote, Truthfully, if it hadn't been my paying job as a critic to watch Fede Alvarez's remake of Evil Dead all the way to the end, I probably would have headed for the exit door before the point where somebody cuts off her own arm with an electric carving knife. He doesn't like it. (laughs) Would have missed the best part. (laughs) And Manahola Dargis of the New York Times said, The remake of The Evil Dead, Sam Raimi's 1981 horror film about a cabin of cult curiosities, doesn't have the original's wooden performances, puffy clothes, and hairdos, or its amusingly crude special effects, but it does share its bloodlust. Torrential and somewhat rust-colored, the blood in the remake splish splashes across the screen, spurts out of bodies, soaks into the floors, and falls from the sky like a biblical portent. If the rivers of red in Mr. Raimi's movie flowed more like molasses than water, it's because they were created with food dye and caro syrup. The new Evil Dead has none of the first movie's handmade charm or hilarity, intentional or otherwise. And I think most critics and audiences that didn't like this movie, their stance can kind of be summed up by Vulture's David Edelston, who concluded his review succinctly, quote, Five years from now, will you want to watch this bloody $14 million extravaganza or Raimi's shoestring original, which was amateur hour elevated to pop art? Evil Dead just bleeds money. But there are some supporters of the newer version. 
Alonzo Duraldi of The Rap opined, Even with all of the cultural baggage, however, Evil Dead, which Raimi co-executive produced, pours on the scares as thickly as it pours on the fake blood. And there's definitely a plethora of both. This isn't just the scariest movie in recent memory, it's also the most vicious. Dana Stevens of Slate wrote, Though it never channels the raw DIY energy of the original Evil Dead series, what big-budget version could, this polished, clever remake remains true to the spirit of the original, which was at once viscerally terrifying and weirdly lighthearted. If, like me, you're a viewer repelled by the sadistic torture porn trend in horror, Hostel, Saw, etc., this romp might remind you of the cleansing properties that are still to be found in a good old-fashioned B-movie bloodbath. And Kevin C. Johnson for the St. Louis Dispatch wrote, The intense new movie presents the best case ever for remaking old horror films, a trend that generally has run its course. This blood-soaked remake improves on its cheeky source material, paying homage while establishing its own identity for younger horror fans who may never knew there was an earlier Evil Dead, though tisk tisk to them. It's ultimately everything a modern horror movie should be. So, Kevin, why is everyone wrong about Evil Dead? Um, so yeah, that that pretty much captures, I think, the feeling that I remember back in 2013 when this was coming out. There were a lot of not very uh, artistic and not very good horror remakes of 80s slasher films coming out right before this. Horror itself did not have a lot of creativity going on. The best, most acclaimed movies of the early 2010s that were at least getting any sort of major attention were The Conjuring and Insidious franchises, which are perfectly acceptable and competent, but not doing anything original with the genre. So you had a lot of subgenres of horror that were kind of dying out the torture porn, the found footage, everything was kind of reaching its nadir. And so everyone said, okay, why on earth would we need another Evil Dead movie when it's just going to be another watered down version like all the others we've seen? And then it came out and everyone said, actually, that was pretty good, but we still don't know why we need it. Everybody who loves Evil Evil Dead already has their favorite Evil Dead movie. They've got three totally different movies to choose from. It's the most passionate horror fan base that's out there. And there's nobody who doesn't like Evil Dead who's going to watch a movie this disgusting. And there's nobody who does like Evil Dead who's going to like this better than whichever version is their favorite. So who is this movie for is the main question I remember being asked. And the answer is, it's for me. It's for (laughs) for people like me. It's for Kevin Parker. That's what Fede Alvarez made this movie for. He said, I've got a really specific vision for my target audience. It's this one guy. The the movie is for people who want to like the original trilogy, but don't. I really appreciate everything about the original movies. I love horror movies. I love gore. I love practical effects. I love Sam Raimi. Um, And I love everything about uh, the artistic integrity of making the first movie when he's 20 years old on a shoestring budget, doing all kinds of different weird stuff with it. Uh, The whole story behind, you know, getting it, you know, the two-year process of getting it released. And then instead of making a more mainstream accessible version after that, when he has the money to do a second one, he goes in the complete opposite direction and makes a bonkers cartoony remake of the first one 
So I, I think these are very pure, loving films. But for me, I've never really enjoyed watching them. I enjoy watching individual scenes from them. But when I actually sit down and watch one all the way through, it kind of just makes me nauseous. I don't really find them funny. I don't really find them scary. Uh, I get why other people do, but it doesn't work for me tonally. And I never really knew exactly why that was until I saw the remake and it kind of felt like it not uh, corrected any problems in the first one, but it kind of brought out the things that didn't work for me and just fine-tuned them until it had a version of this story that I think is very true to the spirit, like they said, of the originals, while also being digestible for someone like me. So that is basically, in a nutshell, what draws me to this film and what I am curious to see if there's anyone else out there who had the same experience with, because I haven't heard a lot of other people, for as many people have defended this movie, I haven't heard a lot of people say this is their favorite version. Right, yeah. I, most people either favor one of the original three, um, and it's very hard because all of them are completely different movies, even mm-hmm. though one and two is kind of a remake of one. It's just a completely different tone and a completely different budget and everything. I'm in the weird position where I kind of, they're all relatively close to me. I'm not a horror person. So Mm -hmm. I watched them all for the first time in this past week. And well, basically I think I kind of tend to favor the first one a little bit more. I just kind of like the inventiveness of it. And Mm -hmm. that kind of sticks with me Two is very close to it, even though it's a totally different tone. It's just weirdly some of the special effects are worse on a higher budget to me. I don't respond to them as much as the kind of cheap, low budget things. And some of the comedy cheesy Bruce Campbell comedy works for me. And other times it's like, no, like when he straps on the chainsaw and is like groovy, it's like, ah, yeah, that's cool. I I enjoy that. But like some of the, over the top stuff is a little weird. I will say the the progressive uh, badassery of Ash as a character, I am totally on board with. Uh, I haven't watched the show Ash versus Evil Dead or any of that extended universe uh, stuff. I haven't played any of the video right. games, but I think every every time they do a corny hero shot of Ash with a new weapon in his hand or a new uh, catchy one liner, I think it hits exactly the mark. That it's going for right in all three films. Ash Ash works throughout all of the throughout all of them. The third one I probably is my least favorite, probably uh, Army of uh, Darkness. I I almost confuse it because they're just last week came out Army of Dead, which is <laughs> just messing with my brain synapses a little bit. But Army of Darkness just because it it does feel like the first like major motion picture fanfic film like it just yeah it's just like let's take this what if this character was a hero in olden times and it's very silly it's even more slapsticky than two in a lot of ways and three stooges comedy in there yeah so that one works and i'd say probably the evil dead four or the newer one is right probably right behind two like it's very close between one and two and then there's a slight gap and then the new evil dead for me and then a gap and army of darkness but i i don't have like again not being a horror person and not having 
the establishment with this. I don't have this chasm. I understand what there's certain things that Evil Dead does better than the Evil Dead or any of the other films in the franchise. So mm-hmm. let's uh, dive into that. Your first point of defense for why Evil Dead is actually the best Evil Dead movie is... Uh, yeah, the probably the least controversial, I would say, that everyone seems to agree, agree on. Uh, the premise for the setup of Evil Dead 2013 is a really strong justification for all the kind of cliches that people complain about. I don't think that there's any problem with just having a movie where teenagers go to a cabin in the woods and just saying we're doing that horror movie. I would have been perfectly fine if they just did that again. Uh, I would much rather have that than have some really forced, awkward reason why they're going in there. But the reason that they do have is really strong. So the premise is that uh, the main character, Mia, is a heroin addict and her friends and family are taking her out to her childhood cabin to help her quit. And she's going to go cold turkey. They're going to keep her there until she gets through the withdrawal phase and uh, whatever it takes, they're going to stick with her. But you've got a great justification for being there. You've got a great justification for why the cabin is this rundown, crappy looking place, as opposed to, oh yeah, some friend recommended it. It's a little rundown is the line that's in all the other ones. But uh, here you've got, okay, this was their childhood cabin. It's been abandoned. They established later on that it got broken into But the place still has an important meaning to them. It has a strong sense of character in itself. You've got a really good reason to root for the lead character. We know right off the beginning that uh, she's going to be very vulnerable and be kind of dragged through the mud and come very low in terms of her own humanity. So we know that it's going to be that much more satisfying when she gets pulled up or if she gets through. Yeah, literally dragged through the mud. Yeah, quite literally at multiple times. Uh, that's the the thesis statements. And then you've got a good central relationship between her and her brother, who is uh, hasn't seen her in a long time, wasn't there for her during the hard times. When their mom died and was sick, she he didn't come and help take care of them. And so he's come back now. There's a lot of tension there. Her friends who are there to take care of her are also his friends. So there's some tension between them that he wasn't there for her. But So you've got a lot of a uh, good dynamic there. And then, best of all, you've got a great excuse for the Michigan J. Frog style horror. The one character is seeing scary things happening. Nobody believes them because they have this reason to think that they're crazy. Right, because they're an addict. They think, oh, she's just going through withdrawals. They also establish that they've tried to kick her of the habit before, and it didn't stick. So she's she wanted to escape, and they kind of let her. So... Now, when she tries to escape, they're like, well, you're now you're just making up reasons to get out of here. You're seeing a creature in the forest or there's something in here or mm-hmm. you say that you were attacked in, in the forest. It's just like, no, you weren't. You're just an addict. You're just a junkie going through your withdrawals. Yeah. And they, they give you all the lines up front that have a, a dramatic irony for the audience. Um, you know, there's the line from now on, she's going to say whatever it takes to get out of here and, you know, that kind of thing. Right. And uh, because we already know we've lived in a world that Evil Dead exists in for the past 40 years. So we already know what's going to happen to these characters in this movie. All of those lines do take on that poignancy for us. You know, the, she she asks her brother, promise me you'll stick with me to the end. And he says, hope to die. And it's like, okay, two lines in a row that we know are going to have very drastic double meanings right. once we get uh, to where they 
to where they're eventually going to get. And we don't need to see the movie and watch it a second time to catch that. We can enjoy right from the beginning. Yeah. Knowing we, that there's, we know that this is foreshadowing and it's not subtle, but it's also not subtle in a fun way where it's yeah. like, Oh yeah, this is all going to happen. Whereas like the foreshadowing in the original is essentially the one girl drawing the like, basement thing and the clock Mm -hmm. possessing her which doesn't really it's one of those things it's not really explained there's lots of things in the original that aren't really set up it's just like crazy stuff is happening the tone of the originals is very much a fun house you're coming in you're getting a lot of different crazy things happening you get your highs and lows and then you leave there's not a lot of point to the actual stories besides just how much do you enjoy each of these things and that's why i really like watching scenes from them you know i think there's great surreal moments in especially in evil dead 2 that aren't in this one that i i miss like the the great scene is the one where everything in the cabin just starts laughing at bruce campbell and he just starts laughing back along with it and it's like okay this is something different than other horror movies um but you get it's basically like being on a 90 minute roller coaster eventually your stomach's going to turn no matter how resilient you are to roller coasters uh you get all these ups and downs and i think with this setup what you've got is much more of a feeling with this movie that you're getting one long arc with one long fall and even though there's you know there's breaks there's right. quieter periods you still know that you're going through this huge build up to see if this character will get through it and that no matter what else happens it's about whether or not she can endure the torture that she's about to undergo right and i guess we should also state that in the original essentially mia's counter character is cheryl and she's the one who wanders into the woods and gets tree raped Mm -hmm. and then much more tastefully done in this version and is the one who comes and you know basically sets off starts being demonic and everything goes from there and she's kind of just like the almost she's a character just there to start the plot as opposed to the character that the plot centers around and in this one jane levy as mia she is the character that you are bonded to and you Instead, in the original, Ash is kind of the character that's the lead. And in this one, it's the first person that gets possessed as the lead. So that kind of changes up that dynamic. The other establishing setup thing that I think is worth mentioning is Olivia in this movie, who's one of her friends there getting her to rehab, is a nurse. So that's another Mm -hmm. reason why, like, when Mia tries to drive off and has these traumatic injuries and when she's attacked by the trees and everything, they're like, oh, well, we let's not leave and take her to a hospital immediately where in a normal situation you would because you have the nurse there. She's like, I can give her care as much as they would give her for a hospital and then we would have to drive all the way there. So there's an even more, there's layers upon layers of justification that are built into the newer one that aren't there in the original, which is just like, hey, this cabin's cheap. Yeah, and I would, I w- what I would say is none of this is great writing. I think people would say, well, technically this is a better screenplay than the originals, um, but I don't think that the screenplay itself is a selling point of this movie so much as the choices that are made in what they put in. 
but the dialogue and all the setup is very boilerplate exposition heavy. You're my little sister. I'm your college friend. You know, there's a lot of uh, those lines. But what it's telling you is here's why you're going to care this time. You did. You might have liked the original movies more, but I bet you didn't care about the characters as much as you probably already care about these characters. Maybe you like Ash because you know that he's going to be a badass later on, but we're not going to learn anything. They're just going to be meat in the other movies. Here we really have a strong reason to root for them, knowing that we're going to watch a movie where the joy of it is watching them get ripped apart. Right. So it, it presents that fun little dichotomy there where you you get to have the game. You get to know that you're going to feel conflicting emotions and taken along for a ride as opposed to just, oh, I hate that guy. I hope he gets killed in a really gruesome way. It's like, oh, no, if that guy gets killed in a really gruesome way, it's going to make me feel something. I better prepare myself to feel something. Right. Yeah. In the original. Well, first off, you wouldn't know. Only people going back and revisiting would know that Ash is going to become a badass. There's nothing that like indicates that yeah. from the start in the Evil Dead. It really, really, in the first half of the movie, you don't even really know he's the main character. He kind of gets the most screen time, but you do think it's going to be Cheryl, and that does become a problem in retrospect with the the very controversial rape scene in the first movie. I I would argue that the the scene itself is not the problematic issue. It's that there's no follow-through or retribution for her as a character, so you do get that in this one. And I guess it is kind of a twist in this one that Mia... And not uh, David, her brother, is the character that we're going to see through to the end because David is kind of set up as being more of a Nash-type character, but I don't think you really ever do feel that watching it because Jane Levy is a much more interesting actress than the guy playing David. He's kind of a a weak link in the cast, just very generic teen drama kind of actor. So I think you kind of know that you're you're rooting for Mia the whole way through, even when it looks like she's not going to make it. Right. So dovetailing into... Your second point, I think, that this movie has more believable characters. Yeah, more believable, specifically decisions from the characters, which is a common thing that people complain about in horror movies is that uh, characters don't make realistic decisions. And that's I wouldn't say that that's necessarily a problem. I think the characters need to make decisions that follow the internal logic of the movie. So one thing that people complain about in every version is why does the guy read the book out loud? And it's like, why would you do that? It's so stupid. The book says don't read. And we know as an audience that it's going to cause terrible things. But the characters don't know they're in a horror movie. There's no reason for him not to. And it's made very clear that there's something spiritually drawing him to read this book out loud. There's voices in the background. We see these dramatic shots of him staring at the book on the table. In this one, you also get the setup that he's an English teacher. You kind of can tell right away that he's more into this kind of stuff. He knows about voodoo versus witchcraft. And so it's, you know, they're alone in a cabin. There's no reason he wouldn't think this is cool and read it. But if the movie wanted to come up with a justification for why he reads it out loud, they could have just said, well, the rule is, even if you read it in your head this time, the demons will come to life. But that wouldn't have been exciting. That wouldn't have been the scene that the movie wants to do. The point of the scene is that we get to have that thrill of watching him read, knowing he's not supposed to. So when people complain about stuff like that, I don't think there's much point to that. But what you do have in this movie is a lot of character choices where you can really understand where they're coming from, where you really believe that they actually want to survive. In the original movie specifically, you don't get any sense that they're really trying that hard uh, to get out. There's like a scene where there's a whole big 
tension over whether or not he's going to let one character out of the basement because she's starting she goes comes back to normal that's a recurring theme in all the movies yeah the demons will come and then they'll revert back into their human form and be like why are you hurting me why have you trapped me why have you shot my face full of nails (laughs) yes we'll get to that scene certainly so there's this whole scene in the original where he's trying to decide whether or not to let this character out of the basement. And there's another character who's also a demon who's just sitting right behind him, not chained to anything, perfectly capable of attacking to him that he's got his back turned to. He's not paying any attention to. So there's not really any consistency in the original specifically, but really in the trilogy to why it escalates the way it does when we know that there's a danger, when the characters know the danger. Here it's really tactful and careful where it's like, okay, the characters make what seems to the audience a stupid decision here, but if you look at it practically, there's no reason why they wouldn't. Now things have escalated a little more. Now we know it's not just withdrawal. Now we know it's not just Mia that's the problem. Now there's more of us. Now we know it's not just, oh, she's, you know, a a monster for a little while and back. Now we know it's going to keep going back and forth so i think all of the decisions that the characters make really do follow a logic in this movie that doesn't always come across as smart and it doesn't always come across as realistic to an audience watching but if you're on the movie side i think everything makes sense and escalates and is paced really well in this one to the point where you properly are believing them as humans the entire time right i yeah, the the reading the book out loud part is a little is probably the toughest against that. Just I mean, there is the thing where it seems like you're the book is drawing him in the way that it's kind of shot and scored that it's like, oh, there's a presence drawing him into this. But it is like, I don't know, it's written in blood on the pages. Don't read this, maybe. <laughs> Whereas in the original, they're just like playing a the tape reel and the tape reel reads it out loud. So they're like, kind of like, ooh, this is horror. There's the douchebag character in the original, the guy. Yeah. And he is essentially just like, oh, scary, spooky. Let's keep playing it. While the other characters are like, no, turn it off. Or Cheryl, I think, is like, no, turn it off. Don't do it. He, It says don't have these words. But otherwise, I mean, and, you know, part of the believability of the characters and going back to your last point is that there isn't really like in both one and two of the original series, there's like a very clear, like this guy sucks. He's a douchebag Like in like the very horror thing of like, we want to give you at least one person who you're like, yeah, I'm going to be stoked when you die. And David in this movie kind of sucks as a person, but you're still not like, He's also kind of the lead, and you're not like, oh, I hope he just gets his head chopped off any yeah. moment. You, you, It's more grounded and believable in that way as well, where you're like trying to... These are people as opposed to characters for the slaughter. Yeah, and I've never bought into that theory of horror filmmaking specifically slasher filmmaking that you need to make the characters unlikable so the audience will cheer when they get killed off i think if you if you make us really care about someone and then you kill them off in a way that's satisfying and that's earned then that can be way more fun and way more just stimulating and emotional 
I think horror is moving away from that now. You know, you look at horror movies in the past six or seven years, uh, you've got Ari Aster's movies, Hereditary, Midsummer. you've got The Babadook, uh, you've got a lot of movies that really treat their characters as real people that you want to, to get through this. And it doesn't make it feel like it's a cheap ploy when they then kill them off in horrible ways. It feels like, oh, okay, this movie just wants me to actually resonate with this on an emotional level. It wants me to actually feel like someone died rather than just feeling like, oh, I just saw some good gore effects for no purpose other than because they were fun. Right. And that kind of ties into sort of the modern take on horror where it's more, it's much more based in pathos. And it's one of the genres that's best suited for like social, weirdly for like social messages and all these like deep themes like this actually represents family trauma and this actually represents X, Y, and this film does that. We'll, we'll, we can get to that in a little bit, but it's much, there's a much more deeper modern sense in horror. Not that older films weren't doing that in some sense, you know, the uh, Romero Dawn of the Dead movies, you know, they all mm-hmm. have social commentary and all that, but it's less based around the cheap thrills as the, thrills can also have a purpose and that fits more into this. And the original evil dead is just, there's no theme of, to yeah. it. It's just yeah, like, it's Hey, pretty... Hey, we're going to put these people in a cabin and uh, have them deal with demons and torture them. Yeah. It's pretty hard to make a horror movie that nobody can find a deeper meaning to. Cause that's kind of a tradition with every generation's horror movie is, Oh, what does this say? Whether or not the filmmakers meant it to, what does this say? What does invasion of the body snatchers say about communism and the red scare? You know, what does King Kong say about slavery and about depression era America? And mm-hmm. uh, you, you can't help but find those things when you're talking about what makes us scared and what made a generation scared then look at where their trauma was at that point as a culture. And yeah, it, evil that is kind of unique in that it's really not a movie that can be interpreted as being about anything. No, it's, um, it's much closer than the like slasher, you know, and yeah, you know, even, but, even uh, the slashers now, you know, they might be like, Oh, this has to do with mental health or, you know, things like that. And th- that, that was my point for the newer movies is it's more, overt in the sense of it's telling that story throughout the movie as opposed to just being like this whole thing is one big metaphor and you just have to like get the one big metaphor it's more the modern horror is a little bit more nuanced with its uh storytelling and scripts yeah exactly and yeah i mean one of my uh favorite pastimes used to be staying up late and watching clips of bad horror movies that I knew I was probably never going to watch would watch kill scenes from 80s slasher movies that weren't otherwise supposed to be good, but had one, you know, really memorable scene. And the reason I liked watching the clips rather than the movies themselves beyond that, I just, you know, didn't want to take the time to watch them was because if I watched those scenes by themselves, I could project whatever humanity I wanted onto the characters getting killed. And that made it feel darker and more sinister. And it made me feel more alive and more human watching it as opposed to if I watch the movie and I watch, you know, 60 minutes of bad dialogue and them saying, here's all the reasons you should hate this character. And then they get killed in a gruesome way. I'm like, good, good riddance. And that's, you know, the, the Elm street movies are kind of an exception. The nightmare on Elm street movies, even though none of them 
well, progressively as they go along aren't uh, terribly good. But uh, there's always that sense of, you know, there is that kind of metaphorical element there. And there is a sense of, well, okay, these are people who are specifically helpless, being attacked in your dreams. And especially as a child when no one will believe you. And that kind of peaks in the third one. Uh, where they're specifically also in a mental institution where no one's going to believe them anyway. And these are kids who are already vulnerable, already a lot of them have, you know, suicidal history and mental health problems. So nobody's going to, even if they see them get killed, believe that it was the result of some monster attacking them in their dreams. So that's, you know, that's what I really look for, even if you're doing a cheap slasher movie, is can you put that humanity into them? Whether or not it's there is, as long as there's nothing that's specifically not letting you do that, like in the first Evil Dead movie with that character who's an asshole just for the sake of showing that Ash isn't an asshole, so they can have arguments where Ash cares about the the female characters more, but I think that this movie does that very well. There's These are very boilerplate character types. They're not deep. A lot of, you know, the two supporting female characters get very little to do, but they get enough to do that you can believe them. You can believe why they're there. You can can really put whatever you want in there. And then the more horrible things that happen to them, the more you can say, oh, that's really rough. I wonder if she has a family. I wonder if this, you know, is something that's happened to her before in this kind of way, or if she's totally new to this kind of experience. And so I, I really like watching horror movies that way, giving them the maximum amount of humanity that they can have. And I think this movie preserves that quite well. All right. So transitioning into your next point of defense. Yeah. So my third point, uh, one I'm hesitant to say because it is something that you mentioned in a couple of the reviews is kind of a counterpoint to why we don't need this movie is the technical filmmaking. A lot of people think this movie looks too expensive too clean, too digital. It does kind of have a little bit of that uh, sepia tone color palette to it that a lot of Michael Bay produced horror movies from this era had. So you've got a very expensive looking movie, but I do think you have to acknowledge that if you look at this as a standalone movie, it really makes the most of its budget, even though it's not trying to look like the originals. In 2013, every year, as you know, we uh, I always do a Oscar predictions list. And I was doing my will win, should win, and should have been nominated in each category. Mm-hmm. And I think in 2013, I probably had Evil Dead as my should have been nominated in like eight or nine different categories. Because <laughs> I think everything technically about this film, the sound design, the music, the editing, the makeup especially, and the direction are all just top-notch horror filmmakings. They're really making the most of the budget. And it is all practical effects. Um, there's digital touch-ups, like they removed wires and things, but all the actual gore that you're seeing is actually there on the set, is actually extensive makeup molds that they did. And so I think uh, you can say this isn't your cup of tea, but I don't think you can just turn your nose up at this movie looking expensive and say, oh, they're just wasting money. I think every dollar really does make its way to the screen in this movie. Yeah, I would say definitely the makeup in this film is fantastic. Even if you don't like any other aspect of this film, yeah. it's really hard to argue against the makeup. Uh, you could even divorce the practical effects parts from just even the character makeup. And the character makeup is still fantastic. Just yeah, uh, absolutely. Mia when she's a zombie and things like that but then when you add in the element of oh also all this gore and 
these things are practical effects too. It's just the makeup in this movie is on a fantastic level. And it won certain, I don't have them all here, but it won like sci-fi horror movie award things, awards yeah. for the makeup specifically. Yeah, the Guild Awards and whatnot, they they usually break it down by genre so that films like this can get in. But clearly this wasn't a movie that was going to get anywhere near the Oscars in any category. But the fact that, you know, a movie like Joker can get nominated for makeup because he wears clown makeup. And it's like, ah, of all the Best Picture nominees, that's the only one that had makeup that was recognizable to the audience. So we'll nominate that. And it's like, okay, and then you watch the behind the scenes of this and there's just rows and rows of molds of characters' faces and all these things. And it's in every shot. There's complicated makeup effects that look completely seamless all the way through the movie. I think you really do have to stop and pay uh, pay a nod to that because not even just compared to the originals, but compared to pretty much any horror movie of the past 10 years or so, I think this one looks the best. Maybe it's not your personal taste in the style of the way it looks, but I think it is gore to the max looking as seamless as we've seen in a movie with this budget. Yeah, I mean, the Oscars makeup awards are always weird and they have certain, (laughs) you know, they have the thing where if you use CGI to enhance makeup, it no longer counts as makeup. So Mm -hmm. a movie like The Shape of Water, which doesn't work if the makeup is bad and is like a best picture movie. Mm -hmm. They're like, no, the makeup doesn't even get nominated for it because it's CGI. And then you see the shots on set. It's like that guy's in full makeup. There's like this, there's like a skosh of CGI to make it more slimy and stuff. But it's, it's a makeup job and it somehow doesn't count. So yeah, this movie not being recognized for makeup is an oversight for sure. But uh, what are some of you, you mentioned other categories, like what are some of the other standout? Like, what do you, love about the technical filmmaking in this be it the directing or sound or other things beyond just the makeup i mean it it kind of goes without saying that even though the acting in this isn't superb i do think jane levy's very good in this movie and the other characters are fine but even just fine is a step up from the acting in the original evil dead it's not an acting tour de force and even bruce campbell is shoddy for like the first half of the movie until he kind of gets isolated and then he becomes a lot more fun and into the role. But the acting's obviously at least a step up, but what other of the aspects of the filmmaking do you are you drawn to? Yeah, I think the directing just has a ton of personality in it. You know, specifically if you look at this compared to the other horror remakes that were coming out that didn't feel like real movies, they just felt like cash grabs. This really feels like a real movie with a real director's vision. I think every time he wants to take you to a place in terms of what he's doing, he sticks the landing. If, you know, a window breaks and a wind machine comes in, it doesn't look like, oh, they must have had a wind machine. It looks like, oh, now I'm off my feet. Now I'm being swept away. I think a lot of it is the uh, the camera choices, you know, when to use Dutch angles, when to use sweeping camera shots, when to use the kind of film language from the original, like the, you know, running through the woods shots and when to do their own kind of new thing. A lot of it is the editing. I think the editing is timed perfectly, especially in all the kill scenes. I don't think there's ever a time where you don't feel the full assault of violence that's happening on screen that he wants you to. It never feels like, yeah, that wasn't that impressive. Like 
you you totally are getting hit in the face with this at every turn and i think it's because of the the way that it's shot and cut together has just that aggression to it that i love that you know it really doesn't feel like oh, okay we're just watching characters in a room with practical effects that would make the practical effects look bad but the reason they look so good and seamless is because the the camera is always finding the most interesting way to shoot them and it never it always gives you long enough to see when something terrible is happening but it never sticks on it too long to the point where you're bored it it finds the perfect note to carry your adrenaline throughout the movie same with the sound design like in terms of all the the demon voices and everything you you feel completely immersed at every step there's never a time where something sounds cheesy the one complaint i i would cater to is that uh, the contact lenses in the demons aren't as good as the original the opaque white scary faces right which to be fair is because the ones in the original were horrible blinding opaque contact lenses that the actors couldn't wear for more than five minutes without doing permanent damage to their eyes yeah the act the, the original was not a fun shoot and the contact lenses were a decent part of that where they just they look great in the original especially for yeah. you know the time and the budget and everything they look fantastic it's one of the best effects in the original evil dead it looks better than even in the subsequent evil deads by Raimi. Yeah. but yeah they were miserable to wear yeah the original looks very organic even when it looks fake even when you can tell where there's a, a special effect or a fake body being used it really feels like you've got your hands in the movie. You can feel the cream corn coming out of the, the gaping wounds. And even if it doesn't look like blood, it looks like cream corn, then you still get that, that icky factor, right. um, which is great. And the, the remake doesn't have that to the same degree. It does look more digital, but the way it's done this way does keep you within the reality of the film much more you don't stop to appreciate the effects you're just getting hit with them you never do feel like oh yeah i wonder how they did that i can tell that it's just like oh no they're doing that ah and no matter how susceptible you are to gore effects it doesn't linger in such a way that says this is the reason you're watching the movie it just says now that you're here check this out and i think that's really cool right i would say the maybe the thing that the original has most in its favor is just how especially for a film of its budget and era just how fun how much fun Sam Raimi had with the camera work Absolutely. Uh, just the and it kind of became his signature in other things where it's just like the twisting angles and coming from the ceiling to a <laughs> non-centered off-kilter thing and the running through the woods with the camera or the final shot where it's them biking through the house with the camera to just yeah. speed things up and there's lots there's a lot more kind of disorientation through the framing and how certain shots are done that is both like kind of more inventive and especially when you consider you know the budget and things like that that it's just like oh they were just kids making a movie and here's all these things that you're just like whoa and sometimes it can be it's not the most like natural filmmaking like you you notice it <laughs> you know it's the yeah. it's very noticeable and you're like whoa but it is also very cool and sticks out in a way that really probably nothing could have stick stuck out in the 2013 version because there'd been 
decades of filmmaking in between there. And there was less, if you, if you'd done the exact same thing or variations on the same thing, it would have been like, Oh, that's just paying homage to this, this, or this. Exactly. And this movie has a lot of fan service, but it never feels derivative of the original. It never feels like it's doing this just to be another evil dead movie. Cause we missed that. Cause we don't need that. We already have the other three. It exists. And that's what I would say in defense of the fact that it has that more kind of digital Michael Bay produced look to it is it's really nice, especially now, even if not in 2013, that this isn't an 80s nostalgia movie. It's certainly an Evil Dead nostalgia movie, but it's not saying, ah, you remember you like 80s horror movies, well, we're making another one. And it's like, there's been a lot of movies like that since this one came out. And it's really impressive to look at this and say, no, this really looks like a 2013 movie, even though it's doing a lot of the exact same shots as the original and it's using all practical effects, which nobody's using. This seems like a modern film. It seems like it wants to use those same ideas that built the originals and make them feel genuine here. I think what I would say is that if there was a mission statement or an elevator pitch for why this movie exists, I think it was... Fede Alvarez wanted to make a movie that was the exact opposite of Evil Dead 2. He wanted to take the all the ideas that were there in the original, and whereas Sam Raimi said, okay, rather than doing a big-budget remake where there's better acting and better writing and it's more realistic and it's you know feels more real, we're going to make it even more ridiculous. We're going to play up all the things that were unique and silly and over-the-top about the first one, and we're going to do a movie that's just nothing but those. I think this one without feeling like it's spinning in the face of that idea saying, okay, but what if we also had that other direction? What would that have looked like if we had this movie that takes the same kind of mentality? Because there's plenty of Cabin in the Woods movies, but there, I guess we should note that too. This came out a year after Cabin in the Woods, which did not do it any favors. Right. It obviously couldn't have known that that movie was going to come out and be a big hit, but Cabin in the Woods, while emotioning lots of movies, specifically was mostly playing up Evil Dead, and it outlines the character types that are almost exactly the ones we see in this movie. And so a lot of people just couldn't take it seriously for that reason. But unlike, say, Austin Powers, which ruined James Bond and made us get a more serious James Bond because we couldn't take him seriously anymore, this one, uh, Cabin in the Woods, was a, a love letter to this style of making movies. and was saying, here's why we really need this style of movies. And uh, so it doesn't bother me to see another one right after that that did the same thing, even if it is a little unfortunate for its release that audiences were inclined to laugh at it for that reason. Right. Not great timing. Yeah. But in terms of that, though, you've got a lot of movies like that. We don't need a high budget movie where teens get picked off in the woods just for the sake of having one. That's the kind of attitude everyone had was this is totally useless. But I don't think we have a high budget realistic movie that is infused with Sam Raimi's blood. I think you really feel his personality in this movie. He is a producer. Bruce Campbell is a producer. And you really feel that this is a movie that loves the original trilogy, but said, I want to see what it looks like in this other direction too. I want to find this, you know, this violent, aggressive, uh, revolting demon worldview. You know, the this isn't, you know, because it's kind of like a zombie movie, except for the zombies don't cuss out your mother in zombie movies. Um, And so it's like, yeah, you don't have eyeballs popping into your mouths. And it's like, okay, what if we had that kind of ethic to start the movie? We're going to make people feel the same way that the originals do, 
but we treated it seriously. We're not devoid of humor, which we'll get to as well, but we're going to have the characters at least not break. They're going to really feel like they're really experiencing this the whole time. And we're going to just have a movie that plays it straight and just watches all of them undergo this. So I think that dovetails perfectly into your next point. Yeah, so uh, point four, probably the most important distinction between this one and the originals is pain and trauma. I feel like this movie really wants you to know that every horrible thing that happens to these characters not only is really happening to them, but really has happened to them for the remainder of the film. There's a line where it's actually one of many lines that is uh, reused from the original movies, but serving a new purpose this time where it's right after one character has cut her arm off with a carving knife and one uh, David, the main character says, we're going to be fine. We've got to, we just got to get through this. We got to get till morning, which is a line that's repeated oftentimes in this franchise. And the other character says, she just cut her arm off. Does that sound fine to you? And it's like what he's saying there is no, even if we all made it out, even if the audience thinks, yeah, we'll be fine. Some of these characters will get out. Therefore we win the movie. We, the characters, have just experienced the most traumatic, horrible thing that's ever going to happen to us in our lives, accepting what else happens to us for the rest of this night. And so even if we all get out of this, she doesn't have an arm now for the rest of her life, and that's really upsetting. And you can feel that toll just pulling the characters down more and more as the film goes along. Right. We can. I feel like this is the point where if you haven't watched the movie, you can jump out if you want to, but we can start spoiling specific things that happen in the pain and trauma department since you can't really talk about pain and trauma as a thematic thing without talking about what actually happens to these characters in their not-so-happy time in the woods. But yeah, Yeah, I mean, it's even, even things as basic as the infamous tree rape scene in the original, it kind of just comes out of nowhere. It's quick, and but it's like, it's not, there's no trauma to it. It's like more like, oh, no, did that just happen? Yeah. <laughs> As opposed to like it, in this, in the newer version, it lives in the moment. And you're like, no, 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 don't do this. And then the character is, you know, curled up back in the cabin. And it's, everything is happens and sticks to happening. I mean, even in the original, there's a point where Ash has his leg kind of clawed up and he, in in a professional wrestling sense, he kind of no-sells it. Like he limps for a minute, but then for the rest of the movie, he's kind of fine and can run around and get out of everywhere. But in the newer version, when something bad happens to somebody that sticks with them for the remainder of the film. They don't no-sell their injuries. They are just having to deal with them and wounded and crippled and so forth. Yeah, exactly. And all the almost all the injuries in this one, unlike most of the ones in the originals, are based on really practical, real things that could happen to you. It's not like, oh, you get sucked into a cellar and then your blood spurts out. It's like, oh, okay, I got shot with a nail gun. I got a needle in my cheek. You know, it's, it's all things that you can really feel. And they take the time to really let you feel all those things. You get to see pieces of metal being picked out of flesh when they're nursing their wounds. And you get to see them sustain their injuries in that way. 
the the scene that I think is what turns this from a good movie into a great one is the nail gun sequence that you mentioned earlier, where one of the characters who's become possessed yeah, uh, Natalie, comes with a nail gun. And, yeah, Natalie with the one-armed Natalie comes with a nail yeah. gun, and basically David and Eric are the two people who are like doing okay at this point. Mm-hmm. Olivia's long gone. Mia's in the basement. And yeah. Natalie comes with the nail gun and just starts wailing on them with the nail gun. Yes. And this scene goes on so much longer than you expect it to. And it has so many points for like, oh, okay, we've, we've reached the crescendo of that. And then it keeps going. They get the nail gun out of her hands. And then she goes and gets a crowbar and just starts beating them savagely with it. Eric, the, the bookworm character, is the one who probably would be the most fun to play because he takes the most damage uh, by the end of the movie. But there's a scene where he's got the nail gun and he's shooting her and she's coming towards him with the crowbar. He's already been crippled by this point. He's been shot through with nails. He's been hit a bunch of times. And he, yeah, and he has, she's he has nails him. in his face. He has nails like going through his arm, like one yeah. side or the other. He gets he's... his hand pinned to his chest and has to pull it out. But she turns on him and starts coming at him with the crowbar as he's shooting her. And this is the place where one of the original movies would have some sort of line like, take this bitch or, you know, whatever the Ash might say there. He just shouts at her, stop. He just wants so desperately for this to end. He doesn't want to kill her. But it's just you so get that feeling of I've gone through this much pain that he's experiencing and it's just not ending. It's an assault on you. I love it. I think some people won't like that feeling, but I feel like what you're put through in this movie really makes you want so badly for them to get to the end of the movie. Right. And then she, she does the demon transformation where she goes back to her normal self. Actually, it's not even like a trick. She just kind of like goes back to her normal self and that's the end of her. her But she's just like, why do I, why does my face hurt? (laughs) She's got three nails in her face. Right. Both her arms missing. But yeah, just all the, all the times that you see something happen on screen, you really feel it. It's not like, Oh, that was a cool effect. Oh, that was very funny. Uh, There's, just always a sense of that was painful and it's going to be painful for the rest of this movie. That hit that they just took to their back, it's going to hurt. They're going to have a sore back until they get out or until they get killed. And uh, you just have that sense of endurance as you go along, which is really key to these movies because part of the thing, the theme of these movies is how low do you have to get dragged before you're willing to do something horrible to get out of this situation. Usually it's before you're willing to kill your friends because they won't stop attacking you. And there's not much consistency with that in the original movies. There's, you know, it's usually pretty early on that they're willing to do something horrible to someone, but then a lot later that they're doing the, oh, but we can't kill them. And here you you really get that sense of like, oh, okay, I've been dragged so low. I've been put through so much pain that, fine, yes, whatever it takes to get them to stop. If I have to cut this person into pieces, that's fine. I am just completely out of any energy to do anything else besides just get done with this. Right, and I I read something, and I think this was from Bruce Campbell's book, but I'm doing my... Wikipedia sleuthing, so take that with a grain of salt. <laughs> but that the in the original Evil Dead, the original cut of it was a lot longer, but all the scenes they cut out were basically what we're sort of talking about, where they focus on the main characters, you know, lamenting not being able to save their friends from, you know, dismemberment yes. and death. 
in that movie, because there's not that pathos set up, they basically, I think to quote Bruce Campbell, they didn't want a movie that was, quote, grim and depressing. And if you're just in mm-hmm. that movie where there's not much story set up, if you're just like spending another 15 minutes kind of living in that, why did I have to do it? It would almost feel out of place because nothing else is established there. So it, yeah. it could feel that kind of grim and depressing way. But also the pain and trauma lead into kind of the two, the modern horror, like what does this film represent? What is the message? And, you know, there's two sort of ways that, and they both deal with how much pain and trauma the characters are experienced. There's the two sort of themes that run throughout it are one just like confronting trauma because that's basically what the David Mm -hmm. character, his whole thing is that he just runs away from, all these traumatic events. Uh, the, it's established yeah. that David and Mia's mom died and it was really like a long drawn out, painful thing. And he was away and always said he would come back, but never come back. And that's kind of what spiraled me into her addiction. And he was never there for the mom and he was never there for her. And it's always him trying to escape having to come face to face with that trauma, with that death, with those horrible things in life. And this is just the one night where he's having to deal with all of it in rapid succession that he wasn't there for his sister, that he wasn't there for his mom, that he's always kind of a coward when it comes to facing these tough things. And then the other much more obvious one is that it's just a parallel for addiction and that this is just, you know, what me is going through especially since uh, again spoiler she's the survivor of this all that it's her it's like her going through withdrawals it's the it's all these horrors it's all your friends feeling like they're betraying you like they're stabbing you like they're torturing you that you don't know your own self because you're the demons within you and you make it through the night and Maybe you're worse off. Maybe you've lost some of those friends. Maybe you've lost some of the people you love. Maybe your hand is severed off for some reason because it was caught under a car. That's usually not an addiction thing, but yeah, you get it. And then uh, Jared Leto and Requiem for a Dream if that's an addiction thing. And then you end up, you know, the kind of end of the movie, it's like, oh, the day is breaking and there's this light and you've made it through all this pain and trauma and there is some sense of hope, even if everything was gory and evil and awful. Yeah. I think that's a great point. And uh, definitely, I think the movie simulates that for the audience as well. I think what it's saying, at least for me is if you're the kind of person who likes gory movies, but you don't like them to be deep, you don't like to care about the characters, but you like the gore. Well, here's something you have to take all at once while you care about the characters, we're going to give you basically the movie serves as a withdrawal period for going through it where it's like, okay, movies might have like the originals might have highs and lows. They have the the quiet moments and then the, you know, the big adrenaline rushes, which is very much like being an addict. And then this movie says, okay, we're going to, we're going to give you that rush for this entire time. We're going to make you suffer until the end of this. And so as a horror fan, you're like, okay, 
by the end of this, I'm going to feel substantial about gore and about pain and about death and about dismemberment. I'm not going to feel like those things are funny, even though I just watched a movie that treats them as if that's the joy of watching it. And it is, you know, if you watch this movie with an audience, they'll laugh and we'll get to that as well. But it's going to let it really settle in that this is something you have to suffer through and make it to the end. And then by the end, you will have a, a healthier relationship to horror and to gore, I think. I enjoy the original movies more knowing that I can kind of put this sort of read onto them and gory movies in general. I think if I'd never seen a gory movie that felt substantial, I wouldn't like the gory movies that don't. But because there are those ones that kind of make me feel like, yes, there is a reward for getting through this, then I think that that really does make you appreciate that experience of just having to endure a horror movie that is going to keep assaulting you with its violence the whole way through. Right. And I should also say, obviously, with the addiction point, that the climactic, the final scene is literally Mia fighting her demon self. Yeah. <laughs> crawling through the literal <laughs> mud. So it's just like, here's here's the bad part Not of vain. you that you're fighting while it's raining blood in a way that Slayer would be proud. And... <laughs> Yeah, you have to literally, you know, split the face of your addiction to see the light. Yes. In, a, in a glorious, full-on Sam Raimi shot, you have to cut yourself vertically from head to stern in order to get out. Right. Uh, so, yeah, that kind of ties in to my final point, which is the one that I think the fewest people would recognize in this movie, which is its sense of humor, which I think is exactly... Sam Raimi's sense of humor, even though it's not obviously overdone. There's no slapstick. There's no Three Stooges gags. There's no, there, there's over the top gore, but it all feels real. It doesn't feel ridiculous. But uh, I think that this movie really preserves what the originals find funny and it just distills them into a more subtle, believable way that doesn't break the reality of these characters. There's a scene where one of the characters, uh, Olivia, has run off to get something from the bathroom and suddenly gets possessed. And she's the first one besides Mia to get possessed. And uh, Eric, the other character, goes in to see what's taking her so long and discovers that she has taken a shard of the bathroom mirror and cut off half of her face. And it's really gross and really traumatizing. And he's responding really realistically. Like we talked about, he's saying, why would you do that? And then as he's stepping back away from her in horror, he slips and falls and hits his back on the toilet and really hurts his back. And then she grabs the needle she went in there for and just starts stabbing him repeatedly in the face with it. Well, he, that he, he, he slips on the piece of her face that she cut that's, off. That's the key is that there's a setup and a payoff there that you're not really looking for if you're watching this just as, oh, this is a really violent scene that just keeps getting more and more violent. But it's there was something missing in that first shot. And because the shot was so horrible, you didn't think to look for what was missing. But then if you had, you wouldn't have had to endure all the really horrible stuff that happens after that. That's a, that's a Buster Keaton setup and payoff. Like that's the kind of thing that the camera really thinks is funny, even if the characters don't think is funny. And I think there's stuff like that all the way through the movie, especially in the way the camera moves, where you can tell that the director gets the joy 
of watching this kind of horror movie. And it's even though everyone would say, oh, this movie's humorless compared to the originals. It's like, no, I think all the humor of the originals is there. But whereas the originals are kind of like, I'm going to shove sugar down your mouth. Like, let's say sugar is the equivalent of this film's slapstick comedy. And you're just going to take as much sugar as you can. This movie says, okay, let's take that sugar and let's bake it with the other ingredients and let's make some cookies. And now let's shove cookies down your mouth instead. So you're still not going to like it if you don't have a sweet tooth. But if you do have a sweet tooth, it's going to be much more digestible. It's going to taste like something that feels a little more substantial and complete. I think all the elements of what Sam Raimi loves about movies, everything that you see in in the original trilogy and Drag Me to Hell and Darkman, all of his, even in the Spider-Man movies, the, the sense of humor that's always there, I think is really present here. It's just the characters don't acknowledge it. It doesn't break the fourth wall. It stays within the horror of what's happening to them. But I think he wants you to find this just as funny as the original movies. And I really do. I laugh at this movie more than any of the originals, even though the comedy is deployed in a very different way. Yeah, and I think part of it is also a little bit of like a foggy memory for lots of people because like two is a comedy. Evil Dead 2 is Mm -hmm. a comedy. But I think a lot of people take that thought and transpose it onto the original Evil Dead. Yeah. And the original Evil Dead is has humorous spots and it's trying to be funny, but it's definitely not a comedy. Yeah. It's, you know, there's spots where you're like, oh, that's kind of funny. Like when the demon's just like sitting in the hallway, like cross-legged, just like smiling at them yeah. big or the basement gets all bloody or, you know, things like that. But there's not a lot of just like, here's a laugh line. And there's not a lot in the newer Evil Dead either, but there's still, you know, comedic spots. You know, like the bloody basement is kind of funny in the original one in the same way that just a torrential downpour of rain, blood rain in this one is kind of funny where you're like, well, this is kind of like absurd and over the top, but it's not like, look at this joke. Look at Ash like smiling at camera that like, this is silly. Or, yeah. or, I mean, there are some legitimately great jokes in the, you know, Evil Dead 2, like when he keeps the hand that he severed off yes. under a bucket and the book that he puts on top of it is a farewell to arms. Farewell to arms. <laughs> so there's nothing like that in this, in the humor in this movie, but I do think there are humorous spots. There's, I think the spot that I laughed at, like just out loud instead of more like a, yeah chuckle or like kind of a acknowledgement that that's humorous was when Natalie cuts off her arm and the guys come to the kitchen and see it. It's like still hanging on by a thread. And she's like, I had to do it. I feel so much better now. And then it's plop. It's just like a, the arm falling immediately after is kind of like the rim shot to the joke of like, I feel so much better. Here's my arm on the floor. It's about timing. You can see it if you watch the pacing. And that's why I think the editing is one of the strongest things in this movie is he doesn't ever edit it like, watch this gory thing. Oh, it's so horrible. Just, you know, sit in this misery. It's always cut the way a comedy would be where you see the horrible thing that happens. You take a moment to resonate with it. Then you realize the way it was set up in a way you didn't think, you know, you remember, oh yeah, they set up the, 
the carving knife before. They set up the nail gun before. You know, there's always a little bit of a, ah, yes, that payoff, that filling in the part of your brain that didn't realize it needed something to fill. And then there's usually a button or there's a button that turns into a whole nother sequence of terrible things. And the joke is, ah, it's still going on. But yeah, I think there's a there's a quote from Bon Joon-ho. I don't have it written down, but he was talking about Parasite. And he talked about why he puts humor in all his movies, no matter what genre he's doing. And he said, if you're experiencing the peak of an emotion, any emotion, it's not the only one you're feeling. When you're more scared than you've ever been, you're not just feeling scared and nothing else. When you're feeling more sad than you've ever been, you're not just feeling sad and nothing else. You get mixed emotions that come in. If you're grieving for someone, you think about the funny things. You think about the sad things. You think about the painful things. And it, it assaults you. If it, if it was just one emotion, then you would just shut down. And that's why, like, Parasite is a movie where, yeah, there's the the comedy and the horror in it come almost at the same moment when you're least expecting them to. And it always pays off and feels really emotionally rich. And I think that's what this movie is doing. It's saying, okay, I'm going to abuse real people who feel like real humans, if not terribly deep humans, still real, believable characters. I'm going to just throw whatever I can at them for 90 minutes and I'm going to make the audience enjoy it while still feeling bad for them. I think that that's where this sense of humor kind of turns this into something that is a great evolution of the original trilogy rather than just a movie that's like, oh, this fixed problems I didn't like. It's like, okay, no, this gets the original movies. It loves them more than I do, but it also gets what someone like me who doesn't have as good of time with them would wants those movies to become would want those elements that I like so much from the originals to feel like if they really felt sustained and if they felt like they were each earned rather than just being like, here's another crazy set piece. Here's another ridiculous thing Bruce Campbell will say. It's like, there's those same beats. They just all come in that same arc that develops and that takes you to the place where you feel like that's a natural thing. Because it's it's ridiculous. The ending of the, this movie is absurd but it kind of feels like, yeah, that, that makes sense. That's what would happen next is it would just start raining thousands and thousands of gallons of blood on the characters because that's the only thing that would make sense after everything they've been put through is for the, the sky to literally turn on them. And it, it just feels like he has that great sense of tone and of how that escalates and of how that feels to put the audience through something like that. It's just, it feels so satisfying whenever he hits those moments. Mm -hmm. And also in the original Evil Dead, there is a part of the comedy that is just it's retrospective of it just being like low budget and it kind of being some of the things just being funny because they are kind of low budget. Mm -hmm. You know, it it's the the early 80s bookshelves that just crumble in like yeah. one sec. It's just like three or four characters get thrown into these like just shitty bookshelves that like <laughs> fall over. No problem. And, you know, just things like that are, you know, some of the line readings are kind of silly because it's not the best acting even though it's straight horror there is in the newer one there is humor to be mined there yeah it's it's played straight but it's not played serious it's the characters never acknowledge that they're in a comedy but the audience will laugh as much as a comedy if they're if they're watching this movie in the right spirit, if they're watching if they it the way that you the way that you like it if they're yeah. not horror or gore fans they're just gonna be like this is sick and gross and i hate this certainly yeah and i mean i i will say the final the the one time the movie does look at itself and give a nod is in the post credits where yes. <laughs> kind of inexplicably 
Bruce Campbell just shows up to say groovy and yeah. <laughs> it's fun. It's funny. It's the, definitely the only like for sure joke in the movie. It doesn't really have any tie to anything else other than being like, okay, we're just going to throw you one massive fan service piece of meat that you can chew on and hopefully come out with a slightly happier view if you were a fan of the original and for some reason weren't digging it until now. Yeah, you know that it has the original stamp of approval with that moment. Uh, you get the, oh, maybe there's going to be a you know a shared universe between these movies, which they've, they've planned but has never come into development. But uh, Does Ash vs. Evil Dead? I haven't watched any. Maybe that slightly I, ties to I it? haven't watched any either. I don't think it ever ties into this one, okay. but I know they, they had announced at some point that there was talks of doing a Evil Dead 2 and then the Evil Dead 4, so continuing both, or an Army of Darkness 2, I guess, that would continue at the same time and merge together and that eventually Ash and Mia would cross paths. That'd be um, fun. But I don't, you know, it's it's still one of those rumored things that has never actually happened. But uh, right. But yeah, I think that, you know, the, the moment where she puts her severed arm in the chainsaw and you realize that she's our Ash, she's not just this character's main movie, she's the Evil Dead main character of this generation it's so cheeky and it's so knowing and it's so winking directly to the camera but it does it without literally having a character wink to the camera it just does it in a way that says okay this is maintaining its reality but you know watching this movie that this is just ridiculous this is just the fun stuff that we love even if it's still having itself take itself totally seriously and I think that's why this feels really unique among horror remakes. It it feels like this one loves and builds on the originals in ways that I haven't seen any other movie do. And it does it while pretty much just going through the motions of a lot of things that people would look for in a remake to do. It doesn't change the big things. It doesn't change the characters. It doesn't change what happens to them, but it changes how you feel about it. And I really love that. Right. And unlike some of the movies that we've covered so far, this movie was successful. So even though it's been almost a decade, it theoretically could happen that they could make, they could just yeah. be like jumpstart it. It is a little weird because Jane Levy's now a lead on an NBC sitcom where she sings mm-hmm. pop songs. Yeah. Uh, Zoe's extraordinary playlist hits different if you've seen Evil Dead 2013 <laughs> and you're like, Oh. I think she was on her uh, other show while this was being made, though, too, wasn't she? The Is it Suburgatory? Maybe. Uh, I, I don't know. But but this was this is a much uh, starker contrast to singing pop songs, I think, even that. Yeah. That. <laughs> so, yeah, maybe uh, when Zoe is done singing pop songs, she'll strap on <laughs> the uh, chainsaw again and get to work with Ash. But only time will tell. We'll see. Is there anything else you wanted to touch on on this movie before we bounce? Is there anything for the junk drawer? No, I mean, I I think we hit it all. You know, there's a lot of, there's little other things we didn't mention. Um, the setup with the defibrillator is, I think, really well done and just pays off in a really poignant way. It's just one line in the first part that's like, oh, yeah, that, you know, that really hits you in terms of understanding her character. But then it, it really pays off when he uses that later on. You know, there, there's a lot of little little touches that are just saying, oh, okay, we're, we're putting a little more effort into this than you would think watching a, a horror remake. We're, we're going to structure this with care and with love. And I, I just think it's 
you know, I, I wouldn't argue it as a masterpiece and I certainly wouldn't recommend it to anyone who doesn't already like this kind of movie, but I do think it's genuinely great. And I think it's genuinely the best one in the franchise for people like me who never could quite get on board with the originals. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming on, Kev. Is there anything you would like to plug on the way out? Yeah, uh, if you want to see more of me, if you like what you see, you can check out my YouTube channel. Uh, It's called There Will Be FUD. I've got a couple uh, video essays on there on some other stuff. It's two Ds, uh, right? Like Elmer Fudd, F-U-D. Like Elmer Fudd, yes. There Will Be FUD. And as far as other things to recommend in the same vein of what we've talked about, another horror movie that came out last year that also does a very good job of establishing why the characters don't leave the house is His House a movie about two South Sudanese uh, refugees who make it to England and get set up in this kind of crappy home and have to acclimate to the culture and in the process discover that this home is haunted, but there's a lot to this particular haunting, but uh, they can't leave, of course, because this is their only option for staying in this country. But it's a really beautifully done, uh, well-written, tactfully handled horror movie it's on netflix so i'd recommend that and i think uh you know speaking to how horror films are received i think that won the bafta for best new director it might have yeah and i know she the main actress in it got a best actress nomination at the baftas too the baftas went for a lot of different directions this year that you wouldn't have expected them to as opposed to the academy awards which had a chance to do which had a chance to do creative things in a year with no movies and we're like no not only are we not going to do that not only are we not going to be like yeah who cares here's a something for palm springs or something they also just ignored anything that came out you know earlier than october forget those movies that actually made it to the theaters when people were still going this is my weekly rant about emma not getting enough nominations (laughs) anyway but uh you know the the fun of the oscars is in in complaining about them i love the oscars and like how many more people have you recommended Emma to because it didn't get in the Oscar nominations than you would have if it had just been a movie that came out and was good and you recommended it at the time and then moved on. So, yeah, you know, it's a, it's a chance I to suppose. talk about your favorite movies of the year. But we're not talking about Emma. We're talking about His House. Mm-hmm. <laughs> His House. Check it out. Netflix. Great. Evil Dead. 2013. Great. All Emma, right. Also great. <laughs> All great. Well, it is great to have you here, Kevin. And thanks again for coming on. And remember, even if everyone else mocks it, love the stuff you love.